I'm Joanne Liu, and welcome to the podcast. When you think of a green transition towards a sustainable future, what do you picture? Do you see new, ultra energy efficient buildings, net zero infrastructure, Teslas, and the next generation of EB public transportation, floating offshore wind? Well, whatever you're thinking, chances are that there are minerals involved. Rare earth elements and metals such as copper, nickel, lithium, and many more are everywhere and all around us. They're in our phones, our electronic, and now, as the demand for scaling up utility-scale renewable energy projects soars, so is the demand for these critical minerals. According to the International Energy Agency, EVs can require six times as much critical minerals as regular gasoline-powered cars. Offshore wind turbines require nine times the critical minerals compared to natural gas power plants. New power plants on average now require about 50% more critical minerals compared to just a decade ago in 2010. And so clearly, since there's such strong demand for these minerals, it isn't as simple as just trying to mine more. New proposed mine sites have come under scrutiny due to contentions with them also being native and indigenous tribal lands, and there's conflicts over subsurface resource property rights. And additionally, despite minerals being used for clean energy, their extraction process isn't always quite so clean. It could potentially pollute groundwater resources, emit greenhouse gases, and put pressure on already fragile ecological systems. Join me as I interview a variety of experts from academia to industry who will break down the complicated questions and issues surrounding mining. We'll see if we can get to the heart of this matter and understand what solutions are available to help us get to solving the heart of the conflict between mining, conservation, and social concerns. Today, we're going to talk about the environmental humanities and indigenous issues when it comes to mining. I'm excited to get to talk to Professor Matt Hooley of the Native American and Indigenous Studies Department at Dartmouth College. He's done some incredible research focusing on extraction, its relationship with colonialism and anti-colonialism and indigenous people within the space of the environmental humanities. Welcome, Professor Hooley. Thank you for taking the time to be here today. As a bit of a background, I'm working on an independent study project under the Environmental Studies Department. I'm really curious about all the intersectional and competing interests at play when it comes to mining minerals and metals for the sustainable energy transition. And now I'll flip it over to you. Yeah, of course. Um, so this is my first term on campus here. So your last, my first uh, weird book ends. My faculty positions in Native American and Indigenous Studies. Um, I, I think one of the ways that like I talk about like what I do teaching and writing is that I work on um, what I call cultures of colonialism and anti-colonialism. So um, what I mean is that we think of colonialism and anti-colonialism as being like probably like political structures primarily. Um, but I'm interested in how those political systems um, basically change or develop or become things we invest in or care about um, or are dismantled or reproduced through things that we think of as being cultural. Thank you so much for sharing. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the idea of both extreme and maybe less extreme, like physical material resource extraction, as well as maybe the more intangible cultural forms of extraction and kind of how our world maybe like in the U.S. has Kind of gotten to this point why is it 
in a sense that it seems okay or for people to kind of gloss over the fact that they are um, essentially engaging in that extractive practice, especially with these kind of native indigenous versus like colonial settler dynamics in play. I have a book coming out in the spring that um, does sort of exemplifies some of this. Um, It tracks the emergence of a tradition of indigenous writing in Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, that kind of coincided with the emergence of um, extractive governance and extractive industrial systems. Um, It's like as that city grew, so too did this indigenous literary tradition. So I'm thinking about the kind of coincidence of those two things. and I think um, one of the things uh, that's important to me in that book that may be relevant to your work too is that I take a pretty like broad uh, sort of definition or understanding of extraction. So I'm, I, for me, I'm not just thinking about like the particular like harvesting or seizure of what we might call like natural resources, but um, for me, extraction also includes the kind of cultural or um, intellectual vocabularies that establish those categories like resource or human. So for me, extraction begins with the categories, um, why why we call things resources, why we call things human, how those things change. Um, And I think like one reason to take that kind of like broad view of what what extraction is, again, I'm trying to think about what might be helpful to you. These days, we're given to think of extraction in these kinds of really cinematic terms, like this devastating mines or, um, you know, horrific air pollution or like water seizure or things like this. And one of the things I want to sort of insist on is that those kind of extreme examples of extraction are like super connected to the things that we do every day, including the way that we talk about the world, the way we identify what's a resource, what's a living thing, what's not a living thing, et cetera. And it also helps us um, see that like, um, there's no there's no colonial world in which, like you can't just like get rid of those kind of dramatic versions of extraction and then have a, a sort of like safe colonial world. Like we can't, you can't do that. You can't sort of like, clean up colonialism like those extractive those like extreme versions of extraction um live really deep in the way that our worlds are formed um so that's why we we can't be satisfied with like a better version of like a, or a, a slightly less extractive world like that's not good enough or that's not even possible you kind of mentioned that you are doing your um research in your book kind of focusing on um, like Minnesota, like in that area. Also, I was wondering if you also had kind of maybe like specific examples from like your research and studies on how that interplay between constituencies, like uh, local people at like the local level versus at like the higher levels of government. If there's kind of that, what's the power dynamic like? Um, essentially, like do people kind of have a voice in that um, situation when they're trying to get at that like ecological, like not anti-colonialist form of justice. That's so interesting to me. Like that, that kind of question is so interesting to me because, because one of the things that it demonstrates is that 
we actually don't have very good ways of thinking about what a world is outside of the parameters of extraction, right? So let me, I'll try to be like a little bit more um, clear or like sort of specific about this. I think the word that you used when, when you wrote to me before was like justified, like is, is, is this kind of, is this kind of um, mining justified for the, for the production of like a more sustainable world. Um, and right now, when we're determining whether something is justified or not, like, I think, what are the ways that we, we, what are the sort of rubrics that we use to make those determinations? Usually they're economic. Is it profitable? Right. Um, and is it like politically, is it, is it sellable politically? Is it like politically salient? Is it something that like voters can recognize and like organize around? Um, and in that sense, like, you know, mining or like electric cars seem like such like a obvious way forward. The more important work, I think, the harder work is to say like, why is it that what we understand to be justified is only understood in terms of profit? or like national defense, right? Because if like we're, if what we're concerned about is like decarbonization, like the, um, the, the easiest thing to do is to demilitarize. Like the US military produces, is, consumes what, 80% of like federal energy. It's like, it's, you know, one of the top 50 polluters just in terms of carbon, you know, in the whole world. Right. So if, like if what we wanted was an expedient way forward toward like a more sustainable world, like demilitarization is such a more obvious path forward than like electric cars. But how come that never marshals any like real support from, let's say, like the left or from like environmentalists? And I think it's because we haven't been able to make to sort of like develop a theory of just of justification um, that's separate from those things like profit or like national protection. Like we haven't been able to say just the fact that this is good for the world. This is just the fact that this is going to save people's lives all over the world. That's justification enough. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I think that's the core of that contradiction that you're pointing us toward. Um, which is that like we're the world that we're given to know is so predetermined by economic and political terms. So it's just like, really hard to get out of them. <laughs> and I don't know how to do it either, except for to to encourage folks like you to to come up with new ways of thinking about it. For me anyway, or I, I would argue that um extraction is is like the organizing logic of the colonial world. And, and our world is a colonial world. It's like the US is a, is a colonial structure. Extraction, it, so therefore like extractive histories and our colonial world histories are really inextricable. We can't, we can't separate them at all. Um, and that, that's like, that's a very complicated um fact for us to kind of sort out in our everyday lives um i know you're asking or you're interested in like 
the question of like, is, is like, uh, is mining justified or justifiable, you know, like, and I, I see in some sense, the real kind of urgency of that question, because it's like, yeah, like, we totally need to intervene in the production of greenhouse gases, right? Like, that's like, obviously ending the world, we, we want a world for ourselves. So, you know, in some sense, like, yeah, like electrification of cars or energy infrastructures seems like a way forward. Yes, absolutely. And so would you say that colonialism is like still present and like the relationships people have with their land? How do you think it's kind of changed or evolved from what people traditionally perceive as, oh, the colonialism of the past to be like a more subtle form that's like kind of evolved today? It's really hard because because of the way that power is organized that um, in the in the U.S., like it it draws people in to these conversations, not not on their own terms, you know. So like um, Minnesota is a little bit different from New Hampshire or Vermont in the sense that the tribes are very powerful there or they're more powerful. Um, they, they have um, land and economic resources. Um, they um, control um, voting in ways that isn't present out here. And so in some sense that that means that like a certain kind of environmental or social justice can be projected there in ways that it can't right now in Vermont or New Hampshire. Um, on the other hand, like it's never straightforward. Um, so one example is um, that there's been that I write about in my book is that there's there's been like a kind of decades long struggle in Minnesota over this plant that's called wild rice. I don't know if you've heard of it or if you've eaten it before. It's actually like a grass. It's not rice, but it's called wild rice. But it, it kind of like looks like kernels of rice. Um, and it's a it's a plant that Ojibwe and Dakota people traditionally harvest and use. It's, it's like also kind of a sacred food. Um, and there's been ways that that because of like the strong pr- tribal um, political influence in the state, that certain protections have been extended to wild rice that are kind of surprising. Like you can't actually market um, wild rice. Like you can't sell it and call it wild rice if it wasn't harvested by indigenous people in the state, which is like, that seems like surprising and like a good intervention, you know? Um, you can call it cultivated wild rice, but you can't call it, you, you have to like say cultivated if you're gonna distinguish it from those things. But on the other hand, like those protections have real limitations. And in some ways, like the focus on wild rice has also made it a target. So the University of Minnesota um, several decades ago uh, began a project to actually like map the genome of wild rice. Um, in order to like, you know, under their terms, they, they said they wanted to protect it. They wanted to like help develop the species to make it more resilient, to make it easier to grow, et cetera. The sort of obvious um, effect of that genetic mapping was that they sold that genetic information to Monsanto or what was then called Monsanto, which is like a huge agribusiness. Um, which 
um, created a strain of wild rice patented it. Um, and one of the things that that means is that when those seeds land in indigenous rice paddies, Monsanto can actually like seize the whole rice paddy. Um, so these things are very complicated, you know, um, and one of the things that I think stories like that indicate to us is that um, colonial power, like, is, is kind of shape-shifting, like it always is changing um, and like it's very adaptable and it like transforms in order to uh, protect itself and to expand. So even in these moments where we have kind of like indigenous driven political representation or political advocacy, um, it never just stops there. Like it's always, it, it's, it's always a kind of struggle right? Colonialism will always respond and find new ways to um, kind of extract. And so, you know, uh, people need to find new ways to organize and, and new ways to intervene in those extractions. Yeah, I think that's definitely like a really interesting way to put it, because like, I've never really kind of thought about drawing the parallels between kind of the, you know, like nuclear attacks, Manhattan Project, as well as, um, this argument for like green energy. And so I think that's incredibly interesting. And I think, I guess like part of the issue is um, like essentially like balancing the responsibility that America has to protect its land and its environmental sanctuaries and refuges and as well as like indigenous land versus also kind of intergenerational sustainability. And so Yes, as a question for you, how do you think we should go about like using these resources and like extractive mining? How should we think about that in terms of weighing like the economic benefits of versus like the sustainability and ecological issues? Um, what are your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, colonialism um, is is not. It's not bad. I think certain versions of history do us a disservice, disservice when they present colonialism as this kind of like um, initial period of like U U.S. history, when in fact colonialism is the is like the defining political structure of the United States and has been from um, before its founding to the present. And one of the the really challenging things about making new histories is trying to see how these iterations of colonialism, the, the moments when it shapeshifts, how they're connected to each other. And that's where um, a focus on extraction, like you and I are both kind of interested in, can be really useful. We have histories in the U.S. of like enslavement, human enslavement of African people taken from Africa, right? Um, and we also have histories of like land dispossession of indigenous people. And so often these are narrated as being um, kind of separate, maybe like slightly conjunctive histories, but primarily separate. And in fact, the idea that those are separate histories is really insidious and it creates like really profound political problems, which I can elaborate on elsewhere. The challenge would be to say, how are these two things connected? And um, it's important to like come up with new histories that demonstrate their connection. And a focus on extraction can actually do that pretty expediently. Um, not only is are those two histories animated by the same kind of political vocabularies, like transforming human beings into resources, 
and also transforming land into resource. Like, so that vocabulary is in place. But actually um, thinking about extraction as the primary outcome of colonialism explains why early colonists needed both land and free labor in order to produce like a, the political world, right? It couldn't just be one or another. It's not just a kind of, it's not simply driven by anti-Blackness. It's anti-Blackness with a kind of uh, political expansion model that needed the removal of Indigenous people. So yeah, how do we tell those two histories together? And I think extraction um, is one way that that we can kind of like see otherwise disconnected histories. Another version of that would be you're interested in mining in Nevada. That's also, that's Western Shoshone land. Um, that's the most nuclear bombed place in the world. Um, it's where um, more than 600 tests, nuclear tests were conducted by the, the military. Um, um, the, the fact that, um, or the way that mining is, is being um, conducted there now is completely connected to the history of nuclearization that came in the early part of, or the mid part of the 20th century. And honestly, nuclear power and, and like electric power were argued for in very similar terms. They're like, this is cleaner. This is like, this is a way to like have um, permanent energy for everybody with no consequences. But the history of nuclearization for indigenous people has been devastating. And there's been lots of good work on this I can point you to. Um, so like when we're talking about like electric cars and mining in Nevada, one thing I'd really want to like stress is that we have to always also talk about how that was enabled and continues a history of nuclear colonialism in the same land. Yes, absolutely. And I know that we're closing up on the half hour mark. And so as a kind of like concluding thought, um, like what would you say is a way in which we should reframe our dialogue and our discourse and the way we think about land, indigenous like, rights and how the land should belong to them. And, and then also like all these different factors that are like at play and under consideration when we're trying to like move forward for like not only sustainable, but also like um, a just and equitable future. Yeah. Well, I think like, uh, I mean, you said protection and that that's something, you know, that I'm like interested in. Um, and that, one reason I'm interested in is because like, you know, we see like these devastating extractive uh, industrializations occur and what we have this like really strong impulse to like try to protect the land, just stop it, say like, no, like, you know, protection is this like really beautiful way that we think about care right but also um actually the history of protection in the u.s is is not antithetical to the history of extraction in the u.s and in fact like the national parks as an example were only produced by seizing land from native people right so um so yeah it's really hard to think about how we try to oppose devastating extraction without actually reproducing it because it's 
it's given to us in those ways. So there's a there's a writer named David Troyer who's made this argument that we should give national parks back to the tribes. Um, and so one thing, one way to kind of think about like our own kind of political responsibilities, I think, would be to say like, how come we can't take that seriously? Like, why not? Why why shouldn't we do that? You know. And I think one of the things I would asking that question would reveal is that it's hard it's hard to like think about political investments of outside of what we're given to understand as our own interests basically <laughs> you know and so i mean I, I, um and also i think another reason another thing that question kind of like prompts for us is that like it's so important to challenge the supposed distinction between environmental political concerns and like social justice or indigenous political concerns, like so often they're given as separate, right? Some of the work that I mean you're doing with your podcast, for instance, is like asking us to confront how these things are necessarily entangled, and how that entanglement in and of itself like asks political questions that like we aren't quite yet prepared for. So um, I hope that like we can shift like your podcast can be a part of like shifting a political discourse away from questions that are like, should we have electric cars to what does the United States look like if it actually actively returns land? Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for your time. This was incredibly insightful. And I appreciate like the just like new perspectives you really brought to this issue, Professor Huli. My pleasure. I think that there's also um, a really powerful role for people like you who are who are like working in economic spaces too to begin to expand like what counts as um of, as as valuable as profitable right as as justifiable um i think i think we need new economic systems that are capable of understanding for instance the long-term value of not industrializing land against the kind of like um, immediate uh, allure of profit, right? Or of of um, capital expansion, right? Like we need new economic systems. And that's something that can be done in conjunction with tribes, but it also can be done outside of like tribal economic and political systems. So um, I'm glad that this is something you're thinking about.